Hi, and welcome. It's Patrick Donahoe. Saving money isn't uh, the most exciting topic in finance. Uh, you can ask any advisor, uh, and those advisors will probably say the same thing about it. Just save money for purchases, pay cash, uh, and then replenish your savings. As you already know, the perpetual wealth strategy allows you to do something different while still adhering to debt prevention principles. So today, uh, Paradigm Life Wealth Strategist and great friend of mine, Gary Pickerton, uh, is also uh, going to be joined by one of our most experienced clients, uh, David Shirky, and they are going to talk about how this systematic approach blends the security and certainty of savings habits with the freedom and flexibility to do more with your assets. Uh, they're going to get into how that can work for you now uh, at, at, in the beginning, uh, as well as continuing to adopt this strategy over the long term uh, and just share with you actual examples of this flexibility as well as certainty. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Welcome to the Perpetual Wealth Strategy Podcast. Hey, Patrick, thanks so much for uh, allowing me to co-host and uh, to bring on my awesome client, David Shirky. David, please say hi to everyone. Hello. <laughs> so David hails from Jackson, Michigan. Uh, he and his family run a company up there. And uh, David is a, a client. I'm very uh, honored to say David and his, uh, his parents and his siblings and his children and, grand and uh, nieces and nephews. Uh, clients of Paradigm Life, and I hope for many generations, future clients of Paradigm Life. And David's been um, on, our, on our team and our family for a couple of years. Um, David runs an amazing investor group up in Michigan to try to help other business owners, entrepreneurs, and investors learn all different kinds of things that he and his family have learned. And, and David is essentially running a family office. They kind of created their own family office, and he's modeling what multi-generational wealthy families, um, which neither he nor his dad would say, that's not us, you know, the very, very humble, wonderful family in the Midwest. Um, however, they've learned that these families have some amazing ideas, like financial education for their children, like uh, ways in which you can prudently look at investments and make low, low risk investments that have pretty, pretty substantial returns. Um, so that's his role in now in the company. Um, used to be in the day to day. But David, maybe uh, just a little bit more about like when you took on this role, kind of um, things you've learned or what you did before, anything that you think is relevant. Sure. Yeah, um, never really knew the term family office until probably two or three years ago. And then as I was able to spend more time kind of seeking out investments for our family outside of our main business, I started coming across um, that concept and that mindset. And um, yeah, we, so we, we have a humble, <laughs> I guess, humble family office, you could say. And um, I'm kind of responsible for searching out strategies and proposing investment options and communicating amongst my parents and my siblings and and now even trying to coach and teach a little bit of the next generation um who the oldest is uh the oldest is 18 right now so starting to help him try to set up his financial future so I think I haven't done this yet, but I think if you went and um, went to the library or I guess Amazon and, uh, and got books on successful family offices or what makes a good family office, have you, have you done that? Have you like actually studied 
that that concept. I bet you there's some great yeah. stuff in there. And my guess, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but my guess is you read it and you're like, this is not just about family offices. This is about a good way to run fan finance. Well, I guess I would, I thought you were going towards, it's kind of all about communication. Okay. Defining what, defining what you want to achieve. Okay. I mean, I think it does take a lot of communication because, you know, you got, maybe you have one generation that maybe controls and generated the wealth and then maybe they're pursuing different interests. And so now me and my generation, I'm trying to be strategic and manage it and grow it. Um, but I still have to communicate a lot with <laughs> my parents, of course, who still kind of control it, but they're leaning on me for defining strategy and, and right. proposing, proposing actions. And tell me what your challenge is, having just read a, a wonderful, heartfelt letter that you sent out to the, the next generation, which I just thought was amazing. But, and I really appreciate you sharing. Tell me your challenge with the next generation. Like, what's your role there? Well, I don't, I don't consider it a challenge necessarily, but um, I do feel like an obligation to make sure we take advantage of these blessings. And, um, and so, yeah, I guess my children are a little bit younger. My, my girls are eight, six, and two. So, yes, we have their banking policy started, and, but they don't necessarily understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, but my 18-year-old nephew, uh, Carter, um, I do think he understands this, and and I just felt compelled recently to write him a two-page letter, and basically I just tried to say, how would how would I share kind of the high level, you know, utilizing high cash value life insurance to create a personal banking system? How would I share that with an 18-year-old? You know, in yeah. two pages, in two pages, yeah. because it's. And so I just, just tried to hit on a couple of things that I think he might be thinking about and might be important to him at 18 years old that hopefully will plant a seed, you know, for the future. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there were things in that letter that I, I felt like it might have been challenging to try to talk a language in which the 18 year olds would, would understand or would appreciate. Yeah. Sure. Um, you're talking things about you're going to die one day and one day you're going to be unhealthy and 18 year olds don't think that, you know, especially male 18 year olds. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. you're kind of, as I would roll up the challenge of the current earning generation, you're kind of in the middle, which is kind of interesting. As you said, you know, you're, you're still navigating um, the, the desires and the goals of the patriarch, if you will, or, the, or the, the first generation that made the money, initially made the money. But, you know, one of the unique things about your city that really inspires me is that they're actually producing things in Jackson. Like there are manufacturers everywhere. Like you're actually making things, which I kind of make fun of that, but it's really wonderful. It's like for me, a hundred year leap back into what America was in the past. Sure. And that's super inspiring for me. Sure. Um, and, and you guys, your, your generation has um, been able to grow what dad put in place, right? So it's not, it's not this squandering, right? But uh, it's just that kind of a message that many people understand that if we, uh, I, it's, it's my opinion that there are some very wealthy people who have been so busy making the money they have, they've made a mistake and have not spent the time to, um, to teach financial education to the next generation. And so maybe, maybe the goals and the ideas are a little bit lost there. And so that's really the point of, of family offices is to actually protect and propagate the wealth. But there's a huge part of it about, about passing legacy, which is passing your own experience and knowledge and, and understanding about why you did what you did. 
Um, sure. and, and so I think that's really misunderstood two generations down from the originator. Um, and your job, your role is to kind of navigate both, which I think is pretty amazing. So uh, love the, the role. And I, I really love the idea that you're taking uh, what is really for $100 million families down to a reasonable level that the rest of us can look at your model and, and other people doing this like you um, and put in place perhaps trust, but most importantly, education systems and ways to talk, certainly to the younger generations, but even the older generation. Sure. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And so in today's talk, we're, we're going to cover um, this life insurance policy, this and asset as we call it. So what do we call it an and asset? Well, if you go back and think about, you know, we talk about it as a bank, right? So there's, there's, if you go back to the normal way that most people would do banking, right? There, there's basically two ways to purchase things in life, right? There's, there's you, uh, you save prudently for it. Sadly, this is a lost art in America. You save prudently for it. And then you spend the money on something. You take it out of the account and spend it. And then you go through the process of saving for the next one, kind of the saver role. And then there is the, um, the in inability, whether your situation has put you in a place where you can't wait to save it, or maybe it's just um, unable to do the delayed gratification, whichever it is, you're in this situation where you make the purchase before you have the money, and then you're not only making the payments to pay off that credit card or the purchase, but you're also making the interest payments, and too many people realize too late that they're just servicing the debt, and they're not able to actually make the payments on the item. But there's a third way, right? And that's what we're gonna talk about, is how can you use life insurance as the third way? And we call it the and asset specifically for that reason. Um, David, what, um, you know, what is your, what comes to mind for you or what's your understanding of the and asset way of doing it? Well, I guess to me, I see it as an efficient way of storing your savings and then helping you perform a couple different tasks with the same money, basically. And to put it very simply, at minimum, you're accomplishing two, which is saving in a more efficient way and having life insurance, but it's easily to, to get it doing three or four things by um, paying for your life expenses via the system or eventually investing, investing in, in things via the system. So automatically it's doing two things at once and it can do even more. Great. So what, what's an example of uh, maybe of an, I don't know if you've even yet used it for like a consumption type item, um, but have you, made investments with loans against policies or? Um, um, so, so far, um, we uh, were kind of surprised to need a new roof. Mm. And so I actually um, took a policy loan to, um, to pay for our roof this past summer. That was one reason I've accessed our policies. And then um, I did make an investment um, in, the, uh, in the ATM, made the ATM okay. fund investment and I actually, because I have confidence in that investment that it's going to perform, I, I felt comfortable taking the 5% policy loan to fund my investment in the ATM fund. Great. Yeah, good. Good example. And, um, and so was there, a, was there any kind of issue trying to link up um, cash flow coming back from the investment? Because what I always tell my clients is I like, especially early on, I like it if you um, first use your policy loans for cash flowing investments, especially if you're gonna make one mm -hmm. anyway. Sure. And the reason sure. is because it helps you uh, learn the, the loan process before you have to learn all of it at once, right? So coming up with extra cash to put in 
uh, is harder than if you use it for an asset that's gonna, the cash flow from which you can use to automatically have a, a source of funds to repay your loan with, right? And we all know that you don't have to repay the loan. It's certainly to your financial advantage to repay the loan. Sure. So it's just a very easy kind of baby step to have your first loan be for something that's cash flowing. Now, speaking of this with the, like an ATM investment, I, I think the, the payments are maybe quarterly. Is that, is that right? Monthly. Monthly. Okay. So that worked out easier. I was hoping for like a quarterly or an annual. I was just going to kind of make the point that sometimes that adds stress for the client of, gosh, do I have to come up with my payments monthly? Well, if you remember, um, you can, you know, we had a, a whole talk on this one uh, or one of the whole podcasts on loans and uh, you get to structure it how it best fits your life and your own personal cash flow. So it's really well placed for a cash flowing asset. It makes sense as well for a roof. And ironically, David, that was my first um, consumption thing or life expense thing that was not a not an ass or not a, an investment that I did as well was a roof in my house. And and I was talking to my advisor. This sounds familiar because I completely remember talking to you about whether you should borrow against it for the roof as well. And um, what, what I was talking with Patrick Donahoe about is, this was 2013, hey, Patrick, I was going to pay off, I, I put it on my credit card because the roof was leaking. And I said, hey, I was going to pay off the credit card with the cash in my checking account, but maybe I should just put it into the policy first and borrow against it. Like, would that be better? And, and we went through the opportunity cost of, of not putting in the policy first. And actually, um, you know, as an example for a cash flowing asset, maybe I'll just really quickly repeat the example that we, um, that we did when I was talking with um, your investors there at MIG. Well, first sure. of all, I've said MIG a couple of times. What kind of like, what's the purpose of your investment group or like what kinds of things do they do there? Well, our Michigan investment group is a, it's just a pretty kind of a casual, low key, bi-monthly gathering where I bring in a different um, investment you know, provider to, um, to share what he or she does. And we've had uh, eight of these meetings now over the past um, you know, 14, 15 months. And um, it's just education, really. It's mm -hmm. the first five or six of the presenters were actual like investment operators that we've actually invested in already. So we can, you know, vouch you for kind them. Of, yeah, vouch for them, sure. Yeah, and now we're starting to actually to venture out a little bit and our next two presenters, um, are, I have not invested with them yet, but um, tried to you know vet them out and got a, got good referrals before we asked them to come present. Sure, and I found it interesting that you adopted this from um, when you were going to graduate school out in Colorado. You were in a group that was similar, and you just adopted the model, and it has been really successful. And uh, I know because I've met with, I've been fortunate enough to have many of the attendees as my clients now. And they're very, very uh, appreciative of you know you bringing that to to this environment and doing so much vetting, if you will, of of the presenters. And it's really kind of opening up their perspectives. It's not what they hear on CNBC every day, right? And and so it just provides opens up the aperture to see other things in in life. So I was fortunate to present um, to the group a, a couple of months ago, and one of the things that we were bringing up as an example was or that I was bringing up because I was trying to do this without slides right and, yeah. and David was moderating it was it was awesome it was really well received um, and so the reason I'm doing the example here again is because it's a decent example of opportunity cost of cash and it worked once without visual aid so I thought my work is my work a second time so if you were going to buy a hundred thousand dollar rental property 
Now, typically, I, I, the way I do it is I go get a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, conventional mortgage, for like 80% of the money, so $80,000. And to keep things simple, I'm, I'm keeping closing costs and stuff out of it. So, so there's $20,000 that we would have to come up with as a down payment. Sure. And um, I've given this talk a couple of times, uh, so I, I kind of remember the numbers and I'm rounding them off a little bit, but you can just go grab a financial calculator and kind of check. So typically I would pay my loan back over maybe 10 or 12 years is kind of how mine is working right now based on the cash flow I get. Again, I just pay it back at the rate that the, that the asset will, will fund it. Now, maybe you want to live on some of the cash flow from this asset. And, and so that would be absolutely fine. You just sure. change the periodicity. So an example of like stretching it out. If we went 30 years on this one, so it ended the same time as the big loan, um, it turns out, and most people are pretty comfortable with this idea, that there's about as much cost in interest that you pay on a loan as there is in the actual principal. So uh, about $17,000 for a 5% loan from the insurance company. So a lot of times people will stop right there and they'll say, um, well, why wouldn't I just use cash? I wouldn't have to pay that $17,000, right? And what do you say to them, David, you know, the other half of the coin, if you will, the other side of the coin. Well, I guess I would have a couple of things. I think the, the easiest one is if you just pay cash, then you never got your kind of snowball started mm -hmm. in the first place. So you never got the cash value injected into your policy that can continue to grow and compound without you having to work for it. And then second of all, you also never got the life insurance in place. And right. I don't think that's necessarily talked about a ton in these kind of vet discussions about cash pay life insurance, but if you don't take a step and pause and take some savings and get a policy started, then you don't have that protection. Yeah, you don't have it started. David, I'm gonna put you on the hook here. Remind me, I wanna come, I wanna circle back to the life insurance side of it. It's a great story about how that evening presentation at MIG went and some things that followed. So. Great. I, I appreciate that. So just talking about the $20,000, if I didn't put it in, I call, I call the dollars going into the property as house jail because my money that went into the property really isn't doing anything for me. If I could have figured out how to um, have, the, have the, the seller, you know, kind of foot that for me or have my best friend put his dollars in, whatever, the property still is going to be ready for the tenant. It's still going to provide me the cash flow. So my dollars going in there, a lot of times people say, yeah, those dollars are doing something. They're, they're earning whatever the property's earning. They enabled the thing, but if I could enable sure. it without it. So really those dollars, if you look at them, they're not earning anything. Um, and, and so if I don't use my dollars, then one half of the coin is I got to pay $17,000 in interest over a 30 year period if I choose to take that long. Uh, but at the same time, my dollars were doing something now, right? Because they were sitting in my life insurance policy. And I'll make an assumption here that they only earned 4.5%, not as much as, as the loan to the insurance company at 5% sure. of that calculated. So if you go and grow, go look at um, uh, $20,000 growing at 4.5% for 30 years with no taxes or fees, um, you end up with uh, $75,000. And if you take out the original 20, that's a growth of 55000 so this seems huge, right? So the fact that 20,000 sat there uninterrupted and grew and compounded and the interest compounded, et cetera, right? Um, it, it grows by $55,000 interest as opposed to the um, 17,000 we paid, right? So a 38,000 difference. It, and it is huge. And there's a couple of reasons why it's huge. One is that it's a 30 year period of time and we don't always go that long. Yeah, um, yeah. And, but it, it's, it, it's moving in the right direction even if it's a one year period of time. 
Um, and then the, the other is that it's, it's operating in this really unique environment where there's no taxes and, and uh, outside fees or anything on it. So it can purely grow and compound. Um, so, so that's really an example of how just the 20,000 that went into that property, um, the, the cost of house jail or the cost, the opportunity cost to put the money in the property is pretty expensive just with doing one and I'm doing 19 right now with my, with my loans. Um, and then the other side of it is that really good point you made, David, and I couldn't have asked you to, to make that at a better time. And that is that you haven't gotten it started, right? You don't have your little banking system going. And as a result, you have some family emergency money. You have property reserves for this property in case something happens. And maybe you have other properties and maybe you have an upcoming vacation. And you just wish you could store that cash on the sideline for a while, somewhere where it was going to grow nicely. So the fact that you started the business to do these investments with, it's not just about the 20, which we showed is really important for opportunity costs. Sure. It's about everything that's growing in your financial foundation there. Sure. Very good point. So we were at this event. And David and I are doing our best to downplay the insurance side and upplay the uh, cash value or the, yeah, the cash value and the banking side. And I lead people down that path all the time. And I'm, I'm certainly um, guilty of that. And the reason is because sometimes life insurance comes off as uh, a little bit uh, off-putting or shocking and people won't go into, they won't even open their minds to the concepts of things like opportunity costs and and a better place to save and grow and the impact of taxes and legacy and things that are important topics. So sometimes I downplay the insurance side of it a lot. Um, I did tell a funny story there um, where, and I won't go into it here, but I kind of got a, some giggles out of people because I think they'd been in that environment where on my anniversary, I thought an anniversary dinner with my wife on my, the third year, uh, the second anniversary after starting my real estate business, um, investing business, I was going pretty hard at it. And uh, I thought it was smart to, as part of this celebration, to tell my wife that I bought two new properties that I hadn't told her about. <laughs> I'd already bought them. And uh, it made her a little mad in the middle of the, the dinner. And a lot of people giggled because they're like, boy, you were a serious rookie. And I was. But um, the thing that saves me in that story, because she was really upset and concerned that... Um, that, that if I were to pass away, she hasn't studied real estate. And so what would happen now if she has to take on all of this and there's, she was like, uh, what was there a million and a half of bank loans debt now? Like, what am I going to do with that? Right. And I kind of discounted that. But um, a few minutes later when it was appropriate to say something and when I'd kind of thought about it, I said, you know, honey, one of the interesting things is that I funded all this stuff with these life insurance policy loans that we got. And there's $2 million of tax-free debt benefit that would come out. So I guess you could pay off the properties or you could just let the bank have the properties and keep the 2 million. Right. And it was a very sure. calming thing. And that was a moment. That was my moment when I realized that this life insurance death benefit stuff is actually kind of important uh, in our lives. And I've always heavily respected it since then. And I, I try to talk to my clients about it. And, sure. uh, and David, you had kind of a similar, uh, you don't have to get too, too far into the conversation of this, but you had a kind of a similar event that we talked about a couple of weeks after that event. Well, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the week and a half after the event, um, I had a very, very close, um, very close cousin of mine pass away. He's uh, my age, forty-two, and yeah. and uh, he wasn't ready, wasn't ready, you yeah. know, financially. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's uh, that's that's part of the deal that uh, we don't think about a whole lot. We don't. I've come to this. I 
haven't, I haven't articulated this concept very well, but I say if we sit here and think about the things that are probably going to happen in the future, you know, we might lose a job, we might get sick, you know, one of our kids might get in a car accident, you know, might have a flood. Well, all those things are, you know, possible, but we know we're going to die. But, but what happens is I don't think we put any, even though it's a low probability that maybe I'm going to, me, I'm going to pass away in the next, you know, week or month or year or five years. But the impact of that happening is so huge. Yeah. So you take that low probability, but super high impact. And that's something that I think if we thought of it like that, we would put more emphasis on preparing for it. Yeah, well, nicely said, and and um, I hope I um, beg your forgiveness if I went went down a road we shouldn't. But it's it's um, man, I I'm I'm 50, uh, and I just went and visited with a bunch or a football game with a bunch of my classmates in Annapolis, and um, they you know they were naming off these people that had passed away already, and wow, like I'm still not ready to think at age 50 that's even reasonable, and you know, and you just commented 42, right, I'm a healthy healthy individual, so. Um, I, I reflected that to, um, when we were having the conversation, I was actually at one of the, uh, on location with one of the insurance companies and uh, I was talking to the, the head of, head of the company and he says, um, you know, Gary, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate. It's definitely unfortunate for your, your client. And, um, and it's sad. However, it happens all the time. You know, it happens all the time to people who are not ready, you know? So uh, took this down a little path, but I do appreciate you helping uh, remind me um, that there's a vulnerability that we as life insurance people who are talking about this as infinite banking don't think about the death benefit side. And I just implore all of you out there listening, please think about the, the death benefit side for your families. And remember that that's just an added benefit to this cash management strategy, this um, asset protection strategy, where it's, it's growing in the background nicely and it's the best place to save your cash. Yes, but at the beginning, and one of the beautiful things about the insurance companies is they never lose sight of this. Every time I try to ask for, ask for a policy and it's maybe the wrong size cash value, they say, well, why, why would we do that much? And I, and I can't tell them it's the amount of cash that the person wants to save because the insurance company, bless their hearts, are 100% focused on, is this an appropriate level of life insurance, death sure. benefit for this person? Sure. So, you know, rest assured that the people on the other side that are, that are looking out for us, they are 100% looking at that side of it. So... David, anything more on these, you know, on the and asset, on cash management strategy kind of stuff that you thought of that I didn't bring up that I should have? Um, well, I guess a couple, when I was getting my policy started personally, um, I kind of used a major annual expense that I know my wife and I are going to have to be paid for every year to kind of size the amount of premiums that we pay. And so we used our private school tuition for our daughters. Mm. We know we're going to be paying, you know, twelve or $14,000 a year, every year until they graduate. So we thought, well, if we can take our savings now and get the policy started, and then every year, instead of paying their tuition directly, we pay our premiums and then use policy loans to pay for their tuition. And, you know, you have to have more savings than just that expense, but... I just, that's how we kind of, kind of got our minds around it to get started was um, take an annual expense that we plan on making anyways and size our policies around that in, in some way. 
And that's, that's interesting. That's a great point. Cause that's kind of looking at it from a cash flow strategy perspective. And I have those conversations, you know, very frequently with clients and, and that's, that's pretty awesome. Like you were thinking about, I remember now you, you were thinking about how to size the policy, like what kind of contributions can we do? And it's really just a redirecting of a cash flow or a cash flow strategy into, um, you know, first going into life insurance. That's a great, that's a great point. Um, did you, do you have another one? I thought you said maybe two or, or a couple of things. No, no, that was the, that was the, that was the thing. I mean, I mean, down the road, definitely planning on using it for buying our next vehicles and that kind of thing. And then um, hopefully their daughters, our daughter's policies, when they're, you know, 16, they'll be using it to finance their vehicle. And when they're 18, they'll be using it to start financing some of their college expenses. But um, those are down the road away still. Wonderful. David, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Um, I will be forever grateful for you and the family uh, and all of the involvement you have with your policies and questions you've asked me and made me grow as an advisor. So thank you, my friend. So Gary, David, thank you guys. Uh, and thank you all for joining us this, uh, this week on our episode, you know, the savings component of the perpetual wealth strategy and just the concept of, and assets, you know, have, have provided so much uh, of that certainty and stability, flexibility, and, and peace of mind for our clients. And I'm glad you took uh, just a few minutes to revisit that with us. So be sure to visit the Perpetual Wealth Strategy podcast page on paradigmlife.net for uh, all of this week's episode's content. We've created really simple visuals uh, to help illustrate these concepts and principles. And uh, you're, you're free to download and use them uh, as, as you wish, uh, whether it's for you personally or, or, or for someone that you'd like to share that with. So uh, be sure to check back for our future episodes uh, in this uh, in this welcome series. Uh, and if this is one of the first podcasts you're listening to, you can go back and check out the, the previous ones. Uh, and also join us next time as we talk uh, about what you should expect with your, uh, your policy and your strategy in the first year. Uh, Nick Welch, a longtime uh, perpetual wealth strategy advocate and now a wealth strategist at, uh, at Paradigm Life, will be joining us as we dive into some important uh, aspects that you'll want to uh, to want to really understand and, and keep at the the top of your mind for the first twelve months as you're adopting this uh, this financial strategy. So we will we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Perpetual Wealth Strategy Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official page at paradigmlife.net for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional or a wealth strategist at Paradigm Life. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review today. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and its exclusive content. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.